Hello and welcome to Eavesdropping at the Movies. I'm Mike. And I'm Jose. And today we've seen Killers of the Flower Moon, Martin Scorsese's uh, new epic, three and a half hours, um, based on a true story, and in, in fact based specifically on a non-fiction book from 2017 of the same name. Um, it tells a story of um, what begins as a mystery in uh, 1920s Oklahoma, where an incredibly wealthy and unusually wealthy um, Indian reservation community is having its members killed. The basic background to this is that in the 1870s, the Osage people, who are Native American or American Indian, the various kind of terms, I think the one that's currently back in vogue is Native American, but in the film they're called Indian. This is set in the 1920s. Yeah. Um, in the 1870s, um, they were forced by the US government into a reservation in Oklahoma, which was, you know... The poorest land. Yeah, I mean, it's, like, it's supposed to be pointless, useless land. We'll just send them there. And it turns out that this land had oil in it. And because the Osage had um, bought their land, this gave them rights to it. it gave them what, they, what was called head rights. And you hear this throughout the film. So it's not just that they have rights to the land and therefore the rights to exploit it for money and lease it to the prospectors who want to drill for oil. But um, the rights to do that are passed down hereditarily. And it's explicit right from the start in this film that... Um, white people want to marry Native Americans in order to get in on this wealth. To get rich quick. The film also makes reference to the Tulsa Massacre, or Massacres, of 1921, which I only became aware of um, when when the Watchmen TV series was out, because it mm-hmm. was kind of it, it, it adapted the Watchmen comic to be based historically upon those, which was really interesting, which was similarly about... Um, a very wealthy minority community, in this case, a black community, it was called Black Wall Street, mm. um, being terrorised. It was very quick in Tulsa, um, the attacks. Um, as I say, it was a massacre. Um, but this is basically about um, white people's jealousy and inability to uh, cope with not being <laughs> richer than people of colour. Mm. In basic terms, obviously, it's not, it's not more to it than that, but that's kind of what we're talking about. Well, I think that's that's as much as we need to know now. I mean, I think the film is is about many things, really. Um, it is about racism. Yeah, it is kind of almost. It's the first time that I've seen a Scorsese film that deals with a kind of um, areas that touch on kind of the founding aspects of American culture, yeah? Mm. Uh, uh, Which is genocide, right? And so here we have like this particular story, which is about killing off these Indian people for their money, uh, these native people for their money. Uh, But, you know, one can take it as a a metaphor for the the very founding of America that's built on the same principle. Mm. So I think the film lends itself, you know, to uh, that kind of reading. And it's an incredibly morally complex film. I think we should talk about the length, yeah, mm-hmm. um, because it's three and a half hours long. I mean, I only looked at my watch once, you know, and that was because I, you know, it had passed so quickly. I wanted to know where I was in the narrative. I didn't feel it at all. It's- I I checked my well clock on my phone 
um, a few times, but only because I wanted to know if I had like guessed correctly how far through we were. Uh-huh. And I was right. Like I basically, I said, I reckon this is an hour, and it was. I reckon this is two hours, and it was. I reckon this is three hours, and it was. Mm-hmm. The whole film is just three and a half hours long. Uh, but I, I just, I was, I also wanted to get a sense of um, how the films, how the film was structured, and how it was being split up, like how much time was was being given to various section, movements. Yeah. yeah. So that said, I do want to touch on the intermission controversy because it's been made into a controversy. Uh, Shall I just explain it quickly? Sure. Um, because before um, the film came out, Martin Scorsese, I think in response to interview questions, it's all, I mean, Martin Scorsese has become kind of a lightning rod for um, kind of internet discourse about cinema through the Marvel stuff. Yes. Um, this was not to do with that. This, but he, he was basically asked about the long running time of his films. He's not the first film he's made with an extremely long run time. The Irishman, we previously saw, was four hours, I think. Mm. Um, Wolf of Wall Street, I think, was three. Um, and he said something which he's not the only filmmaker to have said, which is if people can sit down... James Cameron said this, I think, with Avatar. If people can sit down and watch, uh, you know, eight hours worth of... TV series streaming, then they can sit down and watch a three and a half hour film. Which I go. think is wrong and wrong headed. I mean, I think you, you know, you can't insist that cinemas are the place to watch films the way they do, mm. right? And then not take into account just like the physical aspects of it. So, you know, when you're watching or when you're binging on a television series at home, you make a cup of tea in between episodes. You go to the loo. You yeah, yeah you, you eat something. You you're in control of the experience in a way that you're not that's in the right. cinema, and and you don't just do it in all one. Well, maybe some people do, but that's not. They're different experiences. They're different experiences, and really, a three and a half hour film requires an intermission, and I don't see why he's got a problem with it. I mean, you know, all his life he probably went to films that had an intermission, mm. right? The joke is. That uh, you know, when when Spielberg made West Side Story, his film was a minute longer than the original, right? The original <laughs> had an intermission. Yeah. Right? Uh, and I also thought there was a perfect place for. I mean, there might have been a few, but it occurred to me that a perfect place for an intermission in this would have been just before the FBI show up. Yeah. Um, it felt like a really natural. Exactly. Like, like you come back, you imagine come back after the uh, intermission, and you see Jesse Plemons knock on the front door, and mm-hmm. we're into the final set movement of the film. I mean, yeah. it's an hour and a half still, but. You know, yeah. So, so it would have made sense. But then the other, the other aspect is that um, Thelma Schoonmaker, I think that's how you pronounce her name, uh, who is his longtime editor. She's very, very famous. You know, she's like as editors go, she is the most famous. You know, yes. Um, and she's worked with him forever, and she's enormously, hugely respected. Um, she, uh, I think, made comments um, in the press because some cinemas. Uh, have been showing the film with an intermission, obviously an unofficial one. The, the film doesn't have an official intermission, and the contracts say there is no intermission. You show it the whole way through. And because they are breaching contract, she's talking about um, getting legally involved with these cinemas. Because they they have a contract, or the, then the contract says no intermission. And yeah, so I don't know that Martin Scorsese has had anything to say about that, but she has. Anyway, it's a stupid controversy, and sadly, kind of, you know, Martin Scorsese seems to uh, let his words seem to lend themselves to controversies that shouldn't be a controversy, really, because, you know... I mean, I think people look for it from him in particular because I think the thing, when, when he wrote about Marvel, people now just want to... like. I mean, people are asking him just recently, in the build-up to this as well, 
they were trying to like create a feud between him and Quentin Tarantino. I know. Because Tarantino has said that he's retiring after 10... He's always said this, I'll retire after 10 films, and now he's retiring, and he's going to write and stuff. And he's like, do you think you're, do you think you're better than Quentin Tarantino because you're, you're still making films? He's like, why are you trying to make us fight? You know, yes. <laughs> it's just people looking for... Well, you know, I, anyway, I think he's completely wrong-headed about this intermission business. I think the film, you know... Uh, which is amazing. I think it's a you know it's an outright masterpiece, like right from the beginning, right. But it would have been a more pleasant experience of watching it, and I think a bigger popular hit had there been an intermission. The 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 time is off putting, mm. right. And the time without an intermission, I mean, to people like me, it sometimes think well, it's it's physically impossible. Like you know, you get to a certain age you need to go to the loo, right? Like, you know, and so what are you asking the audience to do? To miss 10 minutes of your film or to have a fucking intermission, right? Which is, you know, what it boils down to, to at least, you know, kind of uh, a portion of the audience of, you know, past a certain age, really. So, so... Well, including him, he's 80 years old. There's no way he's sitting through this entire movie without needing the toilet. I know, you know, <laughs> so I bet you he saw, you know, he saw the film a million times probably in the editing suite with, you know, coffee breaks and loo breaks every 10 minutes, right? So it, it's just... Mm. It or feels... in his, like, private home cinema where he can pause it. <laughs> exactly. So it just feels like an incredible uh, uh, imposition. It, it makes the audience feel, and certainly is publicized as being like, you know, this in, this unpleasant endurance test mm. was, in fact, you know, the film is absolutely wonderful. The time flies, you know, kind of... Uh, there, there are much more uh, joyful ways of, of publicizing the film and of using the film as a magnet for kind of better experiences and happier experiences, which the film itself provides and the discourse around it negates. Mm. Uh, we've talked about the duration of the film, um, at least in terms of the kind of controversy and stuff. Uh, let's talk about the rest of it. You say it's absolutely brilliant and you loved it. I loved it and I was deeply moved by it. And... Uh, I think it's a morally complex film, the way that American cinema re rarely offers us anymore. Mm. Uh, it's completely immersive. You know, I was, I was, like I said, I didn't look at my watch once. I think the performance of Leonardo DiCaprio is, it hasn't been talked about enough. He's absolutely superb. I, I you know, mm. I, I've, I've never seen him better, really. Um, and, this is, in spite of that, I think he's a little bit miscast, yeah? Because I think, you know, certainly in the opening sequences, I would have cast a younger actor. You he's know? supposed to have just come back from war in That's 1919. Right. And he is too old to have gone to war. Yeah, so I don't know how old he is, but, but he looks like mid to late 40s or something like that. Yeah, I think that, that's right? what he is. Uh, and, you know, kind of the opening sequences at least call for someone in their 20s. And so, really, he's he's too old for the part. But what he does with it is, I think, absolutely astonishing. And the other thing about the film is it's got Lily Gladstone as the wife, who is just this extraordinary, charismatic, mm. you know, presence, really. Uh and, the, you know, the two of them together are, are, are beautiful. I think he carries the load of the acting. I don't think she's the actor that he is. Mm. But but she's a star. I mean, I don't know if she will de facto become a box office star, but her presence mm. on screen 
is the presence of a star. Yeah, you know, she's got that that magnetism. You can't stop looking at her. Mm. So, uh, and every bit of the film is absolutely beautifully cast. The narration is superb. It's very moving. It's deeply moving. I actually, I teared up. You know. Really? And, oh yes. Like and it lasted. Well, we'll go into spoiler. We'll say it's spoiler territory. Can you give us a sense of the? When you teared up? I think the moment where Leonardo DiCaprio breaks down after being told that his uh, son has died. And then I stay teary. Like, That's interesting to me, that. Through, through, throughout the rest of the film. Um, it's, I, don't, I mean, I'm not saying it's interesting that like you found that moving. It, it, it is moving. But it's so interesting that this is someone who, and we are very much in spoiler territory, um, has been responsible and participating in so many of these killings of people for which he's now being held he's now the the kind of chickens are coming home to roost in some sense and even though he's kind of it's, there's a question of whether he's working with people or not and will he or won't he and so on people are now be, becoming uh, held accountable for this and we've seen so many deaths we've seen dead bodies and we've also seen the murders mm. um and we've seen people crying over it particularly uh lindy gladstone's character um but the first moment at which you were removed like that was when the person responsible loses yeah, Well, someone. I mean, this is why the film is so complex and so interesting, because I also think the, the film is a metaphor for capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, kind of. Uh, and actually, there's a phrase that you said when I, you know, whenever I kind of talk about some injustice or another, you, your response is, you assume that uh, anybody gives a shit. Right. Do and I say that? You do say that. <laughs> okay, fair enough. You know, and so, and this is a film that kind of, you know, operates on that basis, right? Yeah. You assume that anybody gives a shit until it happens to you. Right? Yes. And yeah. that's what happens. And because they are the protagonists and we are seeing things to a large extent through what happens to them, then obviously we see what happens to them in a different way than we see what happens to other and eat because by them you mean the killers as opposed to yes. the, the victims. Because basically the film is told through the white people's eyes for the most part and Leonardo DiCaprio is the main character and his wife and the other, um, the Osage oh. people, they are essentially secondary. They are. So in a, in a, and in a sense, there's almost like a traditional trope. So Leonardo DiCaprio through the Robert De Niro character acts and Molly and her people get acted on. Right. Mm. So, you know, there is kind of that classical kind of gender divide in a way that becomes kind of a racial divide. Yes, it's uh, interesting, the ge- the gender thing, because I was thinking very early on, are, are all of the Osage people women? Mm. The whole kind of thing, the opening kind of act of the story is essentially the white people are men and they want to marry all these women. And we don't see very many men, or, or, or at least in terms, yes. of, in terms of kind of romantic partnership, we don't see um, Osage men. I, I guess the assumption is they're off working on the oil rigs or something, but we, I don't know, but we don't no, see they, them. Well, no, I think the film kind of explains very well. We do see several and they are, they get killed. Several get killed. Yes. Yeah. Right. And, you know, we do see them kind of being made drunk and their lives forfeited through other ways to insurance scams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do see them in whorehouses and whatever. But obviously kind of one of the ways for white men to get rich quick is just to marry uh, a native uh, woman. Yeah, and that's what uh, this kind of strategy and project is. I think the film is so fascinating because we identify or we're asked to identify with the Leonardo DiCaprio character who from the very beginning we're told is not bright, hmm. right? And also we're allowed, I think, to cry for him a little bit because we never see him do anything directly, 
right? Kind of, he always asks somebody else to do something. He never really does anything. We so, do see him stealing from dead bodies and things. I we don't, do. Don't think we see. I'm not sure that we see him involved uh, we directly see, in a murder. We see him in a holdup. Yeah. As well. So you know, he's 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 about the money. He ta- he ta- that's what he says, mm. right? But also. You know, he's just too dumb to understand the extent of what is being done. Uh, And also, Mm. um, so for example, I mean, those bits where he's really poisoning his wife, right? The slowing her down bit. I actually don't think he realizes that he's poisoning his wife. No, it's it's too dumb to get it. It's a question that the film leaves you with. In fact, his wife explicitly says, what were you injecting me with? Yeah. And... That seems to be the first point at which it is even possible for him to consider the fact that it might not have been real medicine. Yeah. Um, and it was, in fact, like contributing because all these other women, including her sisters, have died these slow deaths, mm. wasting diseases, they're called. Mm. And the, then the implication is, well, the same thing's happening to her and it's all, all been poison. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I don't think, I'm not sure I quite agree with you that he's too dumb to know. I mean, he can't be too dumb to know that they're killing people because he's being asked no, no. to be the middleman in all this. No, no, he knows they're killing people. And actually, the, the the statement at the end of the court case is he absolutely yeah. knows. Uh, he absolutely knows the plan. He was actively involved in the murder of his uh, sister-in-law. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, so, you know... So he's not too dumb for that. But he is dumb. And this is actually why I was thinking that Leonardo DiCaprio is so brilliant. I was thinking the same as you. And it's something that he has done before is he is very good at playing people who are not that bright. No. And he's not like, he's just dim and slow. And you even see... His uh, wife tells tells us that at the very beginning. He's yeah. handsome, but he's not too bright. Yeah. Um, and you can absolutely see it. And you can see, you know, the way, he, the way he looks at people and tries to... You can see him trying to understand things or trying to work out what his reaction should be and that sort of thing. And he's also very good in that it's a long take of him uh, when he's being questioned by the John Lithgow character, the prosecutor mm. in the court case, where he knows exactly why he's there, but he's still, there's something about him that's still kind of, it's just about comprehension, slow comprehension of what's going on. Yeah. Um, or, or so comprehension of what the consequences are going to be of all this. Mm. Um, he's very good at that, and he's and he's wonderful in it. I thought it was a really remarkable performance. I mean, I'm so used to him being good, but it's there's so much detail in... In, in kind of the, the nuances of gesture and facial movement and that sort of thing. And also that he makes this character who is so dim, uh, who's always grimacing, like, you know, he's somebody who's a ill at ease of the world. He's, 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 he's always got a downturned mouth, mm. yeah, and a kind of a pained look, <laughs> really, yeah. Uh, uh, and he maintains that throughout and kind of brings you into this character who's doing the most awful things, right? Who, um, you know, uh, uh, is, is, is basically, um, so one of the ways that these people permit themselves to do these things to other people is because really they see them as not being quite people. It's like mm. shooting a dog or something, right? So because they're Native Americans, they conceive of themselves as doing this way. There's that brilliant moment where we have this voiceover from Molly where she said, you know, she talks about how she fears white people, right? Mm. And she's right to fear white people because all these white people have come, you know, into their part of the world 
to kill them. I mean, it's, you know, it's mm. absolutely clear that, uh, that that is what they are doing under the guise of friendship and beneficiaries and so on. So what I love about this film is that it's so morally complex, right? Because, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio represents these white killers, this, you know, this capitalist, this racist, this racist who nonetheless loves his wife. Yeah, this guy who loves his wife but has no compunctions about brutally killing, you know, his sister-in-law. Mm. Yeah, kind of, you know, the, the film is so complicated in that way and it's so fascinating, I think. Mm. There, there are also, um, there are at least two or three lines that specifically um, bring up the idea of, of the Native Americans being seen as subhuman mm. and comparing them to dogs, in fact. Mm. I think the one character, the, the very thin one with the handlebar type moustache, um, uh, he's asked to kill and he said like he he, he says something like oh yeah you know, i wouldn't kill a dog mm. uh or something like that and then he goes it's, or, or maybe he doesn't say dog but he basically said i won't kill and then leonardo dicaprio says that it's an indian mm. and he goes well that's different yes you know there are lines like that that like make it absolutely clear it's funny that that for a while in the film there is no outright overt racism mm. there's i mean like the the first time someone was overtly racist in the film. I can't remember what the occasion was, but I noticed it because it hadn't been there. But but you you felt you know you felt the undercurrent and and you felt it because for instance you had um Robert uh, De Niro's character, the uncle, who you know stars himself as the king of um whatever the town is. Um or King of Osage he might even call himself, I can't remember. Um he he you know his first meeting at the start of the film with, with DiCaprio, he's explaining to him explicitly that we this is how we get their money yeah or maybe this is second meeting but it's early on you know this is this how we is, get their money we marry them to get their money and this is the plan right so he's aware of the plan um but uh DiCaprio who says himself that he's all about the money nonetheless lacks the killer instinct doesn't have the physical courage you know and ends up really loving his wife which is what kind of um, complicates things in a way, because for the Robert De Niro character, the family is basically his family, yeah, and his nephews and so on. Mm. But of course, for uh, DiCaprio, the family also then becomes his wife and his children, mm. right, who are on, uh, uh, who, who are part of the people that are being exterminated, basically, and exterminating them is also part of the plan. I think at one point, De Niro says, they all have to go. Yeah, their moment in history is over, right? Mm. For something new to grow, they have to leave. And that's what <laughs> so, the title so, refers to, this Killers of the Flower Moon. We, we're explained, it's explained to us at one point, because I think it's through the device of um, the book that DiCaprio has given about Osage history. And it's it's their thing about the, the, the sun is referred to as grandfather, the moon is referred to as mother, uh, fire is referred to as father um, and this this thing about the flower moon is when the, the the tall flowers grow and take over the smaller flowers and replace them essentially mm. which is you know the idea of a replacement um is 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 involved in here it's uh, it's not the it's not the replacement you get this this conspiracy theory called the great replacement which is uh, a kind of white supremacist or actually it's more kind of white inferiorist thing about how uh, people of colour are trying to replace white people. Mm. Um, but here it's it's the opposite. It's it's we are the ones 
doing the replacing and we're very specific about how we're doing it. Mm. Um, and in fact, you even get, which I, which I appreciate because I thought it needs to be brought up, um, the, the mother character, the mother of the, uh, all the sisters, mm. um, talks about how all of these girls are marrying white people and we are going extinct through that. It's a real threat that she sees it. I wanted to talk a little bit about that because the mother is played by Tantu Cardinal, right? And I had one of those, you know, moments of memory that sometimes happens in films because uh, she she first came to my attention in a film called Loyalties by Anne Wheeler, a Canadian film from 1986. And I have not seen her since, <laughs> right? And when she appeared in this film, is it, it brought up a whole lot of life and you know, a whole other country and a whole other culture and whole the other structures of feeling. It was just kind of, it's. A, I think it's amazing the power of cinema. Just the sight of her face immediately kind of connected me to, to that mm. really. Um, and of course, you know, she is a, a, a native person, uh, and she's she's Canadian, right? So I yeah. think the term is First Nations in Canada. First, yes, she's Cree, I think. Right. Uh, anyway, kind of a, that was an amazing kind of. You know, just a, a moment, a flash, really, mm. uh, for me. Um, though it's worth saying, I think, how beautifully cast, how distinctively cast every minor character in this film is, yeah, with such distinctive features. Mm-hmm. You know, the actor with the slash across the face, you know, the one who was in jail and who uh, squeals. They all have like these incredibly kind of distinctive faces and they're all incredibly good. Um, do you have any reservations about anyone? Uh, performances, no. I mean, performances were the, my favourite thing about the film. There were things I didn't get on with and things I just didn't find very interesting. But, but I was always interested in seeing these people perform. I really loved... I mean, I mean, I know you asked me reserva- reservations. I'm just going to say about something I loved. Um, I loved Brendan Fraser. When he came, ah. who's in it for such a short period of time, but he starts off with this performative outrage in court, mm. and the shot of him from—I mean, he's a huge bloke. You know, mm. he wasn't just big for the whale; he's a big guy these days. Mm. And um, and the shot of him from below performing to the court his outrage before mm. pre- proceedings have even begun—that um, he hasn't been able to speak to his client and John Lithgow goes at him. The way he again, it's it's his facial movement, right? Mm. It's the way he moves his eyes and the way he expresses outrage. Mm. It's it's marvelous. It's so it's funny. I mean, the film is funny in all sorts of ways, um, despite being yeah, you know, it's kind of uh, as horrific as it is as well. Um, the film finds room for jokes or or, or funny ways of expressing things, um, and he is funny in that scene. And it's that you know he's overacting to make this point and so on. He's, I thought, God, that's just wonderful. You know, mm. everyone was very good, but he made such an impression in the very brief time he was he was around. Mm. I loved all of them, but I think what's most, you know, I just want to get back to this idea of what the film is about, you know, because I think part of why it's so great is because of what it's about, you know, and what it does with it. And so I think that the idea of genocide is built right into the film from the very beginning. All these white people are come in, are coming in to kind of kill all these indigenous people so they can get their money, right? And it's very easy to see that as a metaphor for America. Yeah, it's, yeah, like, yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's you know, the other side of the Western, right? It's kind of, you know, uh, uh, 
And aside from that, or alongside that, is also built in this portrait of rampant capitalism that doesn't stop at death, you know, that has kind of no moral compass, in which every, absolutely everything is corrupt, right? And the irony, of course, is that, you know, order is restored through J. Edgar Hoover's FBI. And of course, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, has become a byword for a kind of corruption of America, yeah. the spying mm -hmm. on people, you know, the 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 blackmail, the all of those kind of things that we've learned that J. Edgar Hoover did, right? So it's like, you know, the people in the church are corrupt, the law is corrupt, the doctors are corrupt, they're killing mm -hmm. people, right? So uh it's 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 almost like uh, the the only thing we see that's good is the tenderness between is it Ernest and yeah, the the Leonardo DiCaprio character and the Lily Gladstone character between I think Ernest, Ernest and Molly yeah Ernest and Molly I mean all of the uh, all of the um, Native American characters are essentially good I mean do we see any kind of moral corruption, even in a, on a minor level in any of them. I think they are just pure kind of good, goodliness and victims and that sort of thing. Well, you know, uh, even when, even when we see, we're introduced to them as because they are so wealthy because of the oil that they're able to exploit. Um, you know, they all have the most expensive cars in America and they all have this, that, the other, and they're spending all this money. And which is where you first get like a real visceral sense of how much white people must hate that because they're the chauffeurs. Well, but, but you know, you, do you see them as, as bad in any sense? No, no. But the thing is, they're all killed. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I think they're part of what of how the film is conveying both the genocidal elements and also what capitalism does. Yeah, which is, you know, to kill off all that is good, really. Mm. First corrupts, yeah, get them to drink and flash their money and waste their money and so on, get into debt and so on, and then kill them. So, you know, kind of, it's uh, it's, it's, it's a certain representation of America, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, but they are super capitalist too, as well. That's kind of what I'm saying. And um... Well, but there's that speech with the leaders saying... You know, kind of, uh, you know, we're not like this. The troubles came, you know, to our people when we came to this land and when we got this money. So, you know, kind of the money is seen as the root of all the evils that are downing. That it's are true. Dry, and the one, the one member of the council who's saying that he refers to specifically as white money. He says we should have known it would come with problems. Exactly. Because it's, it's the white man's money. Yeah. So, um, so I thought it's just, and actually I have to think about it some, some more because I think it is like a really kind of, you know, the film moves so well and it's so entrancing, like you're really immersed in it that I, I don't think I've yet had time to kind of tease out, you know, some of the uh, complexities in it. So kind of what you have are like almost like physiological responses. For example, I thought the interplay between Robert De Niro and uh, DiCaprio was fantastic. You know, kind of they were brilliant individually and together. And actually, some of the funniest yeah. bits... They're a comic partnership. Yeah, come from their interplay, right? Uh, with with, with, with um, De Niro getting pissed off with how how hard it is for DiCaprio to understand what he's being told. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> very good. Uh, 
So, so you know, you 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 respond to those things, but then there are other things that I think require further thoughts. So for example, what is the point of the radio show at the end? Oh well, I th this is where I think I understood the film best, to be honest, because I, for, I the film justifies its time, I, but I still thought, oh, I'm kind of bored by some of this. I, I liked you know kind of dialogue interactions that sort of thing, and I like the explosions of violence that, that punctuate. I mean, I kind of, I kind of liked everything, but I wasn't feeling there. There was something I felt missing, um, that I was missing. I'm not saying it's like the film's fault. And then the end, I, I was like, oh, I, you know, this is this is basically the film implicating the audience once again. He did this in Wolf of Wall Street. The end. The, so Wolf of Wall Street is about you know kind of hypercapitalism on Wall Street and thieving and lying and all the rest of it, and um, and the, the the kind of outrageous. Um, lifestyles that enables these people to live and we're supposed to sort of we're supposed to be critical of them like you know because they're being these kind of great vulgarians with all this money that they're stealing and then the film ends with Jordan Belfort the main character going on stage just DiCaprio again um, to an audience and he says you know you want to be like me you want to learn how to make money and then the film ends with a shot of the audience from the stage's perspective kind of panning over it tracking over it to, to, like to say this is you Okay, everything that you've just watched that you like, you want to say that you hate to all these people being vulgar and stuff. Why is it that you want to be like that? And the film, I think, is ending in very much the same way here, you know, or a similar way with an audience listening to this story being told on radio in the fifties. Like, we want to hear these stories told. We're interested in true crime and all this. Well, why is it that we we see these just as entertainments? Well, I think that I think that sequence is doing more than that, you mm. see, and this is why I feel kind of I need to think it through some more because, you know, part of what you see is a, a, a melodramatic, glitzy dramatization for the radio, right? Kind of you're given some information that continues the narration, but also you're also told uh, what doesn't happen, yeah, you know, what isn't told, right? Like so, and then the uh, director appears yeah to kind of wrap up the story mm -hmm. uh, but then there is newsreel footage used throughout mm -hmm. yeah there are kinds of movies used within the film mm -hmm. yeah kind of all those western sequences so i think there is also you know something in the film about you know what stories are told and what aren't how they're narrated you know how they're incomplete uh etc etc so and I and I think that is deliberate. Yeah, that it's kind of the the mm. last sequence in the radio is somehow connected to all that use of newsreel footage, including false newsreel footage. I think most of it is has been newly shot. I don't know how much of it is actually original. I think I think one of the westerns that you see in the film uh, is is a is a movie yeah. yeah oh yeah no but i mean the newsreel stuff in particular like this like the kind of portraiture type footage sure. of people on the street and stuff that has been um well. yeah and the oklahoma stuff is news is um newsreel footage yes i think it is yeah it's, so it so like you it. know so there is something there about the media and what the media does it is, and, yeah you're right you know, it's about which, mediation of how we're told these stories and, that's right yeah so so i have to think i have to think that through some some more really um and then i think there are also kind of you know some scenes that are just like superb so you know when when dicaprio is walking towards de niro in the jail yeah and back right those are just like kind of extraordinary 
There's the images of the people out of focus in this burning field, yeah, you know, where the image gets doubled and you don't, yeah, you, know, you don't see faces, and that's used quite a bit, yeah. Um, oh yeah, that's when um, that's when isn't that, it, it's it's heat roiling that makes right. the image, and you see that a lot, and it goes the film gets almost kind of dreamy at that point, like it's not exactly clear why the shot it keeps on being gone, gone back to. Yeah, it's just it's atmosphere, it's setting, yeah. and that sort of thing. And and I think what I like best is the complication. So within this corrupt world, within kind of this this genocidal context, yeah. Nonetheless, two people love who are on either side of that conflict, and their feelings for each other are are pure. Yeah, they do love each other, you know, and 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 the 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 element of murder, which is you know, which one of the participants is guilty of, is kind of you know put aside by the character, but not put aside by the film. Mm. Yeah, kind of you know, you're always conscious of what his role is in what is what is happening. He is kind of a, you know a, a principle in it, uh, and I think those scenes where you know he's slowing down his wife, he thinks. But we know that it's slowly killing her, mm. right? And yet, kind of, you know, his tenderness towards her, his care for her, and her reliance on him is so loving, you know, and that creates such a kind of a complex moral, mm. yeah, that you can actually love someone that you're killing, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and doing it in a protected way, or that you're killing you know, all your in-laws for money. Yeah, I was going to say, because know, the thing about his wife is, I, I think we're fairly clear that, that he, he does not he doesn't know. know. He no. doesn't believe that he's killing her. He believes he's making it better. So that's, we yeah. quite fit that. But yeah, with the family and killing everybody else who she knows and loves. Yeah, but he knows he's slowing her down, in quotation marks, right? Yeah, but he's been told that's a good thing. He's been told that's what she needs. He thinks yeah. it's medicine. I don't. I don't think there's that much complexity in that in terms of his, what he believes. Oh, I... I think he knows, no, I mean, we know he knows he's doing her harm because there's that scene where he pours some of that stuff in his own whiskey. Oh, yes, yes, that's yeah. right. Sure. And he gets sick. So, you know, so I think initially he doesn't, but you see a progression of that, right? Yeah. You yeah. know, so so I think, uh, you know, the, the moral complexity that we see in this film, whilst the film moves along at a clip. Yeah, it's, it's incredibly entertaining and it moves really fast and so on. Yet the, the, the moral complexity of the center is is such that, you know, I'm not used to seeing in contemporary cinema, in contemporary American cinema, mm. right? And I think this is kind of why this is such a, an absolutely great film for me. I think the film also has a really wonderful look. And I was reading about... Um, uh, they basically created new lenses for the film. Um, it, and this is not like, Scorsese is not the first director to have called upon like Panavision to, to develop a new lens for a specific look that he wants. We talked just recently, well, actually it wasn't the lens, we talked just recently about um, uh, Oppenheimer where um, Christopher Nolan had Kodak create black and white IMAX film, you know, so mm. the, the big name directors and and kind of, you know, as a, well, the internet darling directors, they have this kind of about them. Um, and here... So I'd read about this, but I hadn't read that much. And then I start watching the film and going, oh, there, it, it, all these shots, especially um, 
kind of reasonably wide angle like scene setting shots. Mm. If you think about like that scene at the start where where De Niro and DiCaprio are talking in those two chairs, mm. and you'll see a two shot of them, which is quite wide, you know, um, and you see the kind of distortion towards the edge of the frame and the way in which the way in which kind of blocks of colour or areas of colour become blocky mm. and they become kind of frayed at the edge. And I'm thinking, oh God, this looks exactly like, like, meet me in St. Louis, mm. you know, Calamity Jane, like all these films, like John Ford, all, all these films from the 1940s and 50s when, you know, with like Technicolor sort of, the way in which, and, and it doesn't look like, it's not aping Technicolor, right? But there is an aspect to the way that those films looked, the way in which, there was kind of there's a, like a, a level of artifacting or the way in which artifacts manifest in the in those in that imagery is is coming through here and then i read just before we started the podcast that the kind of specific thing they were doing with the lens mm. was to um because they wanted to shoot this anamorphic thing and, and they took <laughs> just parts of lenses from the 50s and just put them in it so it's got like components from the fifties that just affect the light in a different way, and they and it develops this. This it looks like all those films, you know, it really does at points. Mm. So I'm thinking, God, that's really remarkable because it's you could so imagine like if you, know, you think about a film like The Artist or something where it's all about just pretending it's from the past. It's not doing that, but it is giving you some some sense of that look, and and in so doing, conveying some of that feeling. Sure, it's remarkable. It is remarkable. Uh, the cinematographer is uh, Rodrigo Prieto, who did uh, The Silence and The Irishman for Scorsese before, and also did uh, Ang Lee's Brokeback Mountain. Mm. You know, and the film has like a density and a texture, and it's so beautifully lit, you know. And, and then there are moments, like again, you know, the reds in the radio show, it really, like, if they're so intense and it really feels period and it does what you say. Mm. Yeah, it kind of, it evokes some of the feeling of that. And of we that should period. point out that we saw this on the uh, Cineworld uh, IMAX Digital, yeah. which is where we have resolved. It's like, that is just the best place to see films. because right. and, and when we saw those two films the other week in, the, in one day, one in the IMAX and one in one of the normal screens, the, the difference was night and day. Yeah. And that compar- and like, so this is the film being shown, you know, basically at its best. Yeah. Um, although to be fair, that's, you know, it's a digital projection um, and maybe, you know, a wonderful film print. I don't know exactly how it was, um, how it was shown, like what the other ways are to see it, but maybe that would be you know, even more remarkable, but mm. it was wonderful to see it like that. And, th- and the film, the production values are just so ridiculously high mm. and, and good. And it's, and it's partly in the lighting. So, I mean, the scenes in, um, uh, when the FBI, well, I don't think it is the FBI at the time. I think it became the FBI. I think it's just called the Bureau. Well, it was called the Federal Bureau. Yeah, no, it, sorry, the Bureau of Investigation. Yeah, it, was called, it was called the Bureau yeah. of Investigation at the time, but from the federal government. Exactly. So. Um, but when they when they first take in um, Ernest and and some others, and they're questioning him in in the kind of you know, at one point it's basically darkened rooms, um, and you get you you get this. I don't know how often you'd seen it before this point, but Throughout the rest of the film, you're getting this harsh white light on mm. characters' faces. It reminded me of Gravity, in fact. Mm. The first time I really remember seeing that in cinema and thinking it all, all kind of you know, remarking upon it was um, in Gravity, the, the the sci-fi film, which is out at the moment, I think, because it's mm. 10 years old, um, where because you're in space and the sun puts out just pure white light and it reflects off everything in this 
crisp, harsh way in that film. I thought, wow, that looks really amazing. And here, it's it's the same thing. And I, I wonder whether it is actually once the Bureau gets involved in this film and these questionings start happening, that this lighting comes in because it has this kind of coruscating effect of, you know, you are under bright light and yes. being questioned sort of thing. Yes. Like the truth is coming out here under perfect white light. Yeah. Well, that's interesting. I have to think about that some more because, of course, when the FBI comes in, it's also when you have all these really noirish uh, jail sequences or mm. interrogation sequences where the light is really kind of um, full on, on the, in the face and mm. uh, and it's just in spots through the screen and so on. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's like one character, you know, framed just off to the side in that kind of natural way, but it's just them and then the rest is quite dark and mm. they just show up. Mm. In, yeah, spotlight. Anyway, it's, a, it's a beautiful film, I think. Um, I, I, you know, I recommend it to everyone. Uh, and it's one to think about. I feel like, you know, I've just experienced it, but I haven't really thought it through, you know, mm. that it gets kind of, it's one that, uh, that lingers in the mind and that you want to find out more, really. Yeah, I don't recommend it as much as you do. I wasn't, I wasn't moved by it, for one thing. Um, but I did think it was interesting, and it's been interesting in, in conversation. Because just as we kind of came out of the cinema, I texted my brother to say I've seen it, and I wasn't that into it. No. <laughs> and, and I was kind of going, you know, I don't... I, during the film, I was thinking, oh, there's bits of this I'd really like to watch a second time. All these mm. dialogue scenes, I think they're really nicely written, and they're beautifully performed, mm. beautifully shot and edited. I mean, they're, they're just wonderful. I love good dialogue, you know. Um, and then when it gets to courtroom stuff, you know, uh, to be fair, the film doesn't doesn't go deeply into courtroom stuff. You spend very little time there, really. Um, but you know, I you know, I love a good courtroom thing. Mm. Um, and then and then you know, just in the kind of moments after coming out of the cinema, I'm just walking to the car. Even I was going like, I don't know, I don't know if I'm really that into this, and how how much I thought it was, how how much I thought it was sort of telling me stuff I hadn't thought about that kind of thing. But um, it has come alive in the conversation, and I and I think I might, might be interested in watching it a second time. I, I was I was deeply moved from the moment that he's told his child has died, the scene at the funeral where, you know, he he first can't look at his wife, you know, then they touch and yeah comfort each other, yeah, uh, then there were scenes in the courtroom where the wife finally realizes, you know, what, what he's done mm. and he's pleading with her. The Caprio is so fantastic that you can see all the emotions in his face, right? Like mm. kind of, you know, he really loves her. And of course he's losing. Yeah. Like, so he's doing it to protect them because he betrays his uncle saying, I've got to protect my wife and children now. And, you know, those are the moments, like, in the courtroom where he's losing her. I found that all so deeply moving, really. Like, I, you know, I was kind of teary throughout all of that, really. Yeah. No, that's good. Um, I wasn't. So. <laughs> uh, but, I, but I thought it was interesting. I just wasn't moved. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, we recommend it. We may yet see it again. Uh, you know, well, another... it's a long... I mean, yeah, it's a long movie. Though. I don't know if I'll see it again. I don't know if I'll have a chance to see it at the cinema again, to be honest. Because yeah. I just... I'm so busy. <laughs> You're so popular. <laughs> well, I'm less popular. I might see it again. Uh, I I absolutely love it, and I think it's an outright masterpiece. So I highly recommend that everyone see it. So um, thank you very much for listening. We are eavesdropping at the movies, and we are on.
Apple Podcasts, Audible, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and YouTube. On social media, we're on Facebook and Twitter, at Eavesdrop Movies, and Blue Sky, eavesdropping.bsky.social. And the website is eavesdroppingatthemovies.com. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. <laughs>